John 19, 1-30. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold, the man! When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and an Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold, your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, 
I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Well, we're going to spend a little bit of time looking uh, at the Word of God right now together um, in the preached Word. And I just want to let the parents know that there is a nursery available downstairs if your kids need to be in the nursery. Uh, you can make use of this uh, now if you need to. Also, if you're having older kids with you and you're wondering if they <clears throat> might need something to, to help them as they, as they are guided along the rest of our time together, there are little kids' bulletins out back and some crayons that they might make use of. Uh, so you can go and grab those. They're just on the, the table as you walk in the entranceway here. Um, and I have to come to this word, though. I, I want to invite you to pray again with me. And we'll pray and ask the Lord to, to open our hearts to, to hear from him. Uh, Father, we do, we come to you and we, we pray, would you, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, would you work in our hearts? Would you draw us to see Jesus in all the glory and the majesty of the love of God lifted up on that cross as he dies for our sins? We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. So why is the cross at the center of the Christian faith? This whole morning is about the cross. Our time together in this, this gathering is about the cross. But so why is it at the center of the Christian faith? After all, originally, uh, the cross was an ancient torture method and not an object of Christian worship. That's not what it was originally. The Assyrians or the Babylonians probably invented it. And the Persians popularized it. And the Romans perfected it, and it was gruesome. Today, where we have capital punishment still, uh, governments put in effort to make sure that it's done in as humane a way as possible. But the opposite was true with crucifixion. It was designed to be excruciating and to last for as long as possible. So the account of Jesus' death is awful and disturbing. My wife was sharing with me how when the kids uh, last week read through these accounts for the first time, or some of them for the first time in the, in the kids' ministry, that my own son sat there with his jaw open and just, just awed by these accounts. I think we've become a little bit familiar with them often and have forgotten the gravity of them. The account of Jesus' death is awful and disturbing. So why dwell on the cross of Jesus? Well, that's a question that I'd like to answer this morning as we consider the last three words that Jesus spoke on the cross when he died. It is finished. It is finished. What was finished? The process of dying? Well, yes. We read the next words. Jesus spoke, it is finished, and he gave up his life. No one took it from him. He, he gave it up. Was that what he was talking about? It was part of it. There's so much more in those three words. Because in John 17, verses 1 to 4, Jesus tells us, I think, what is finished. And the significance of the words, it is finished, 
on the cross. And these words in John 17, they're from Jesus' final hours of prayer on earth before he goes to the cross, where he's praying to the Father. He begins his prayer and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is to know God. To be brought into relationship with God. And then Jesus goes on. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And that word accomplished is interesting because that word translated accomplished here is the same word that Jesus spoke from the cross. It is finished. I finished the work. You know, I recently heard a story about a man who was diagnosed with a terminal illness. And in his diagnosis, he was a young man and he had a small child at home, a young boy. And he realized, my my son is going to be raised and not have the privilege and the help of a father to guide him. And so in the last months of his life, he wrote a series of letters to his son to guide his son in life. You see, this man in his death, as he approached his death, had a singular focus for the rest of his life. And in the passage that we just read in John 17, Jesus prays, I think, with a similar singular focus. He prays that the Father would glorify him so that he might glorify the Father. And he says that he has glorified the Father, having accomplished, having finished, it is finished, the work that the Father gave him to do. His friends, the singular focus of Jesus' life was to glorify the Father. And now through his death, he prays, to glorify his father through his death. This is a work that is only finished at the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, if you don't know what glorify means, uh, you're probably just nodding along, yes, yes, glorify, Mm mm-hmm. But what does that mean? It's one of those churchy words, I think, that, that we sometimes just assume that we all know what we're talking about, and actually nobody knows what we're talking about. And what does this word mean? Well, to glorify someone means to increase a person's reputation. Love songs are written to glorify the person that's sung about. I mean, I have used that word, but that's what that word glorify means. Praising the characteristics of this person, usually in ways that are uh, completely false, or maybe like three-quarters false. (laughs) Our national anthem was written to the glory of Canada. It was written to... Praise Canada among the nations of the world as the true north, strong and free. And Jesus' life purpose is to increase the Father's reputation among human beings on earth. It's what Jesus came to do. From the very beginning when we read in John 1, when God became human, when Jesus was born, we read John as he wrote, and the word Jesus became flesh. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
And then we read at the end of his life in John 17, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son might glorify you. You see, if you don't hear anything else from this message, from our time together, know that Jesus came into this world to show us through his life and his death who God is so that we would love him. So we run to him to receive from him the life that we were created for that can only come from him. See, God wants a relationship with us. And when you want a relationship with someone, there's only so much that you can do from a distance. I'm sure that nobody here who's married pursued their spouse only sight unseen through written communication. Am I wrong? Did anybody do that? You know, never met them to the wedding day, only sent letters. You see, God didn't pursue the church, the bride of Christ, unseen either. See, God became human in his pursuit of us. God became weak. God lived and breathed and bled and sweated and suffered as a human being. And when you look at Jesus, you see the fullness of the glory of God. In the Gospel of John, it's what we read as John tells us the narrative of Jesus' life. We see who God is in the things that Jesus did. And in John 2, we see who God is as God incarnate turns water into wine at a wedding when they'd run out. Showing that he's a God of abundant life, of celebration, of joy, who desires to increase the joy of his creatures. In John 5, we see Jesus, God incarnate, healing a crippled man who had lived in his crippled state for 38 years. We see Jesus reveal a God who is merciful and who is kind, who loves us in our suffering. In John 6, we see Jesus feed the 5,000 after he had fed them with the word of God, the words of life, and they're running to hear from him. And then they grow hungry, and he sustains their life, the miracle of food. We see him walking on the water as the master of creation, the one in whom all of us should put our faith. In John 11, we see Jesus, God incarnate, weeping over death. Jesus wept over the death and the suffering that we experience here in our own lives. In John 11, we see Jesus, who is God, bringing life to death as he raises Lazarus to life. In the gospel, Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. And I will lead you to the fields of abundance. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father to know the life that is in the Father except through me. Jesus wants us to see by his perfect life a God who is unbelievably good, 
unbelievably loving. A God who desires that we would be in relationship with him. And what's surprising in John's gospel then, knowing all of this, is that this beautiful and compelling Jesus that we see in the gospel, that he's rejected. John 1 verse 11, John writes, he came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. And as Jesus draws near to the cross, John makes certain we know that it isn't just the bad characters of the story who don't believe in Jesus. Because even the disciples, they don't really believe who Jesus is either. Even when they think they know, in John 16, 30-32, we read this. Now we know, Jesus, that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And in the next verse, Jesus says this. Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. And indeed it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. This theme of belief and unbelief in John runs through it like a controlling thread. We're a family church here at Christ City. And John's point, though, as Jesus comes to the cross, is that we would see, is that we would see, that no one has believed in Jesus. Jesus glorifies the Father by showing us the beauty and the goodness of God through his perfect life. So why won't people believe in him? We don't believe in Jesus because of a profound virus that runs the software of every single human heart. It's a virus that John spoke about in John 3, verse 19. He said, this is the judgment. The lights come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Friends, this world is broken. I don't think you need me to tell you that. It's full of sin. It's full of suffering and pain. And the thing is, we, I think, think so often that all of that stuff is because of things that are out there. Right? The darkness is out there. But friends, the darkness is in here. Because if we're honest, we're the ones who lie. We're the ones who don't open up to one another and to God. We're the ones who cheat. We're the ones who steal. We're the ones who lose our tempers with our friends and our spouses and our children. We're the ones who are full of hatred individually and corporately and nationally. And the Bible is clear that at the root of all of this sin and all the destruction that it causes in this world is our unbelief and the goodness of God's love for us. We don't believe that he loves us and wants us to have life. So we turn away from him. We love the darkness rather than the light. You see, our unbelief in God's love for us is why Jesus had to go to the cross. Because only the cross can triumph over our unbelief as we see God's glory perfectly displayed in his unbelievable love for us. After all, how do you know the quality or the character of someone's love for you. 
Isn't it by their sacrifice? Right, kids, I guess we're all kids here. We've all had parents, whether you actually are currently living under your parents' roofs or you're an adult. We know that our parents loved us, even imperfectly, and I'm sure all of them were imperfect in this, through their sacrifice for us. A sacrifice that when we're young, we don't really comprehend at all, and as we get older, we start to be awed by. In friendship, you know that your friend loves you when you see them go out of their way to sacrifice their goods and their comforts, and the things that belong to them, in order to make your life better, because they love you. But on the cross, we see the glory of God in a sacrificial love like nothing else. As in the person of Jesus, God himself experiences death. In the person of Jesus, God himself experiences death, even death on a cross. Why? Why would he do that? Because he loves us. And it's even more incredible because Jesus' death wasn't the sacrificial death of a, a mother or a father jumping in front of the bus to save their, their kid, the beloved child that everybody adores in the neighborhood. No, his death was the sacrificial death of dying for his enemies to win them for himself. But friends, by his loving death for us, by his loving death for those who rejected him, who would not believe in him, he forever secured our forgiveness. He is the propitiation for our sins. That means that, that Jesus bore the weight of the judgment of God against us for our unbelief and our rejection of him. That all of that is put on Jesus as he dies in our place and for our sins. There is no sacrifice for sins remaining. By his death, Jesus crushed the power of Satan that holds us captive in our unbelief. The Bible's clear. It's not just us and our sinfulness that's a problem. It's also there's a spiritual force entrapping us in our unbelief. But by his death, Jesus conquers Satan. By his death, Jesus reconciles us to God. So we are freed to love him and to love one another because the Holy Spirit is now poured into our hearts. And the love of God flows from us or from him to us and from us to him and to one another. And all of this is to the eternal glory of God. And all of this is only finished when Jesus says, it is finished. So why dwell on the cross? Because through the cross, we see the full glory of God's love for sinners. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, the same author that we've been reading, writing a letter to a church, he says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In Romans 5, verse 8, Paul the apostle wrote, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And by the cross, Jesus conquers the unbelief of our sinful hearts. And finally, the words that Jesus spoke in John 12, 32 are fulfilled. And I, 
when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. See, Jesus has finished his work of glorifying the Father on the cross. And by that cross, he's drawing us right now to know and to love and to savor and to rejoice in the life that God desires to give us. So right now, we're going to respond to the cross of Jesus by coming to him. We're going to just let him and pray that he would. And and we even pray that the Holy Spirit would be at work right now. Draw us to that cross to see him, to worship him, to adore him. We're going to do that through a couple cycles of silent prayer together now. What we're going to do first is we're going to come to the cross together. We're going to spend some time repenting. I want to invite you to repent of the ways that even right now, you don't believe that God loves you and is for you. Even right now, maybe there's things in your life where you're not walking in obedience to him because you just don't believe that he loves you, that his ways for you are good. I want to invite you to come to the cross, repent, to see the love of God poured out for you in Jesus Christ. We can do that together now in silence. Um, It would be appropriate if you wanted to, to kneel. I know that we're not often a a kneeling church. We did this at our prayer time together a couple weeks ago, but, but there's some space and you'd be welcome to do that here as well as we come to the Lord in confession. And then in a few minutes, uh, we'll have some special music that will continue to guide us as we pray and reflect, and then I'll lead us into our second cycle of prayer. In our second time of prayer together, we are going to turn to the Lord in thanksgiving. He's going to spend time worshiping and praising him that he is for us, that he loves us. How do you know that he is for you? Paul tells us, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him. Who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all of this because of God's love displayed on the cross.